Now we don't have any value. Hey, Langdon. Hello, Eden. I have a, a hypothetical situation for you and then some bad news. I, you know how much I love hypotheticals. Does this one also involve the Grinch? In a way, in spirit. Mm, beautiful. What this? So this metaphor, uh, hypothetical, sorry, not also metaphorical in a way. Um, hypothetical situation comes to us courtesy of one of those shirts that go hard pages. Mm-hmm. What if you will? Okay, it's the eve of the flood, right? Got it. Um, Noah, you know the the guy. Yeah, classic, classic guy. The, the guy with the boat, the guy who sleeps with his daughters. Yeah, well, he doesn't. Well, they sleep with him. He's not. Yeah, yeah I know him. Yeah, that that guy. Um, so you're you're a monkey. Um, okay. Or, or dudes, an ape. Be, dudes do be rocking. All right. Yes, you're you're an ape, and and you you go to the ark, right? Like you got the invite and everything. Go to the ark again. It's the eve of the flood, right? The storm clouds. It's obvious. This yeah. is Not just a regular storm. It's like wrath of God, all that shit, and. You find out that you're the third monkey. Hmm. There's two monkeys before you, and they're about to board the ark. And brother, it's starting to rain. What do you do? Well, I throw hands. I'm a monkey, so I got monkey strength. You Although they it, got right? monkey strength. Yeah, absolutely. No, so here's the thing. They so biologically your strengths are um probably similar right because you're of the yeah. same uh, yeah we both genus. have ape strength exactly of the same genus as a scientist would say but they have already secured their spot you're the third monkey on noah's ark on the ramp to noah's ark and brother it's starting to rain by the way that's the shirt um fight like you're the third monkey on noah's on the ramp to noah's ark and brother it's starting to rain so you have freakish strength from desperation, right? Mm-hmm. You have like the image of yourself drowning, coursing through your muscles and giving you freakish strength. So so you just you go think, to town on them. Do you think apes understood that it was the wrath of God? Do you think they had the theological impulse to know like that aspect of the storm? So I'll tell you what in what world I would like to live. I would like to live in the world where they were ignorant of God's wrath. Same. And that would make them far too powerful. Yes. And also, no, I was coming at it for more of like um, a compassionate place where they did not fall from heaven. So I would hope that the pain of sentience, like full sentience would be spared them. But I think we actually live in the universe of the fall where every single creature has been cursed by God. Um, I can see that. <laughs> I think the vol is like is not fantasy. I think it's metaphysics, like it describes yeah, I mean, the actual state. It posits a very real fact, which is what if um, animals were the chosen by God and we're the punishment meted out against you know animals and plants. Yeah. Yes. Okay, so now it's time for the bad news. Okay. The the bad news is that we have to talk about Michel Foucault. Um, so I don't know what it is, like if it's just random Twitter sphere, meme verse, coincidence, or if there's something specific happening. But so there's always been this thing 
in certain leftist circles, which is either to shit on Michel Foucault and call him like a CIA asset, or completely and utterly worship him and use his theory as like the end all and be all of postmodernism. Yeah, and, the, the um, classic thing where people can't read good. Yes, exactly. They they are illiterate. Um, most people are illiterate. <laughs> did you know? Uh, most people are illiterate. So, <laughs> but so that was always a thing. I would see it now and again. But nowadays, I'm just seeing it constantly, and and I'm fully cognizant that it's probably just a filter bubble, and like the specific people that I follow are talking about it. But it it's really intensified over the last six months. I would say. As other discourses amongst the online left, that cursed and <laughs> damned, damned group of individuals, um, our perennial bugbear. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Has kind has kind of like escalated, right? Because over the the past six months, there's been all that fucking what's their name, patriotic socialist nonsense, and that's caused like a lot of people to double down on their listen. You are a leftist if you like. Four people, Marx, <laughs> Engels, Lenin, and Stalin. If you've read anybody else and think that they are leftist, then you're a liberal. Um, and then just re- change up. It, yeah, just change up the, the names, right? It could be um, Marx, Engels, Lenin, and Mao. Um, there's the a bit more rare variant because most, most of these people are Westerners of Marx, Engels, Lenin, and Ho Chi Minh. Um, based variety, by the way. Um, As I'd say, they at least have a point. Yeah, for sure. And so, and then anybody else um, is a liberal, including, of course, one of the favorite targets of like uh, online leftists, the French philosophers, and chief amongst them, for some reason, Michel Foucault. Um, some people also go after Deleuze and Derrida and and all those guys, but people really, really, really like to talk about um, Foucault and talk about how, yeah, he's like the neoliberal philosopher, which is really gets at the the fact that one of Deleuze's uh, chief and Derrida. Now that I think about it, their, their chief uh, defenses is that they're so hard to read when you want to read them (laughs) that if you want to critique them, it's almost impossible. No one knows what they're saying. Yeah, it's um, occultation as a defense mechanism. Perfect. But Meanwhile, Foucault foolishly wrote legibly. Well, somewhat legibly. Yeah, uh, more so. Yes, more so. Depending on the period, I would say. Like later in his life, he for some reason decided to like write in a way that humans can actually understand. Um, <laughs> now, here's the thing. There's a lot that Foucault got wrong. Um, and there are a lot of extremely valid critiques, both from an academic perspective and from a political perspective. Mm-hmm. But Foucault also got a lot of things very, very right. Um, and was it, it's, it's patently absurd to call him a neoliberal, right? Again, if we go politically. Like Foucault, and this is the main thing that pisses me off, and maybe that's why I'm starting with it, Foucault is like one of the only French philosophers who had praxis. Yeah. Like this guy. So one of the things that happened around Foucault's life, of course, and Sartre, is the 68 Student Rebellion 
but also before that, people always know about 68, right? But they learn absolutely nothing about the lead up to it. There were like a series of protests and strikes and worker dispute in Paris. One of the most famous ones, because someone got assassinated during, one of the workers got assassinated, um, was at Renault, right? the car manufacturer, which is a French institution. Today, it's, it's kind of like, it's not French anymore. They don't make it in France, but it, it used to be like one of France's most important industrial bodies and um, the workers there um, were on strike. And two of the people that, that took part of the protests, there's pictures of them, very famous pictures of them, were Foucault and Sartre, who both attended these protests and didn't attend them, like came and gave a speech, right? They like were on the picket line, they got into it with police officers and so on. Foucault also. Say, I think one of them threw yeah. a brick or some shit like that. Like there's a yeah, yeah, story the, of them getting like dragged away by yeah. their fellow rioters because they were like, dog, you're going to get straight up arrested. Yeah. Um, and like it doesn't end there. Uh, Foucault also campaigned for uh, prisoner rights um, successfully, by the way, um, and was a vocal uh, critic and um just uh, what's what I'm looking for? Like not, not exactly criticism, but more like bringing things into light, not, not investigative journalism, but like making sense of what the French state was doing and what, and writing explicitly against um, neoliberalism. Now to get something yeah, out of the way. Writings on the carceral nature of the West. I mean, it obviously his big misstep was framing the way the West orders its society over the entire world, which isn't really accurate. But at least within the West, the idea of modeling um, the prison as one of the central uh, abstract structures that we model all of these other things from the workplace to schooling to, uh, to, to even like why rehabilitative structures fail as well as restorative structures fail um, is spot on. And I wish um, at this point that anyone read them, let alone more people. Yeah. So I think we'll get into like the academic critiques and the academic merits of, of his work. But if I if I did the like the political real world kind of um, good stuff that he did, of course, there's also valid criticism, um, <laughs> both him and numerous other French philosophers signed um, a petition to lower the age of consent in France. Of course, this bad. was bad. Yeah, yeah. So, so a lot of supporters <laughs> try to say, well, it was his personal life has nothing to do with his philosophy, which is nonsense because it was tied into his philosophy of like sexual liberation and and uh, personal creation and stuff like that. Um, if we include Sartre in this equation, Sartre and Simone de Beauvoir slept with their students on numerous occasions, um, including like, I don't know if this makes it worse, but it just adds like context to it. They wouldn't just sleep with them. It was a whole like, uh, borderline kind of like BDSM uh, dominance kind of thing that they had, um, and and Foucault was was not, if not involved in that, he he um, knew, knew about it and and so on. Um, and so that that's the personal stuff. Other than that, like he didn't do anything else problematic. But yeah, and of course the usual critique that he was French. This was when Algeria was still a colony. Of course, Foucault wrote uh, for um, Algiers' liberation and worked for it when, when he could, but you could say that he didn't, didn't do enough and didn't address the very real um, racial problems at a time when you could, he couldn't claim ignorance, right? Like Franz Fanon was already working. 
um, and other philosophers were already actively taking part in, in the, the conflict for Algiers' liberation. Um, and you could say that he didn't do that. Where in this can you find like a CIA agent? I don't fucking know. Um, but I guess. Now, academically, much more interesting question, by the way, than Foucault's life, right? Like Foucault's theory. The first thing that I got to say here, and we, we spoke about this on the cast before, for crying out loud, postmodernist philosophers are not advocating for postmodernism. <laughs> it's not I the same as a I Marxist philosopher. So much. Yeah. I hate it's the not... people that say that so much. That's Did you like notice 95... they've all become fucking turfs in the past like three months? Yeah, of course. I mean, they uh, were always like so well the turf the turf discussion is interesting. I think we'll get to it once we explore like uh Foucault's um, ideology or, or philosophy further, but like they are describing a situation, right? The postmodernist philosophers are what they're saying is we live in postmodernism and we need to understand it, not we are promulgating the idea of postmodernism. We are here to like break down meaning. Meaning has already broken down. Just like Nietzsche didn't say we should kill God, he said God is dead, he's already dead. Not we should go and murder him, although that would be fucking sick. And we're going to talk that would about be a very book. <laughs> and also, we're going to talk about a book today where people actually go and kill God. Um, so, so that's awesome. Um, they go straight in the lair of the sun god on this bitch. God, yes. what a good album! I introduced Indeed. a friend to it recently. Great, great album. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> anyway, so okay. So, so what what did Foucault say, and why? What is the legitimate and interesting? academic critique of his idea of postmodernism. Basically, and by the way, th this is going to be wrong, what I'm just going to be saying, right? Because I'm summarizing like two years of study into 10 minutes of discussion on a podcast. So I encourage you to go out and read and I'll give some reading recommendations before we break for music. So the idea is that knowledge or truth is not um, an objective thing you're not actually exposing reality as much as you're describing um, the limits and borders that the context in which you're operating has placed on that reality if this sounds familiar and you're thinking about the hyper real and all that shit and Baudrillard and all that stuff that's because yes <laughs> they were influenced by each other and they spoke to each other and they were both postmodernists and it's very, very much um, similar. But Foucault chose to focus less on popular media and culture and so on. Like there's no Foucault's take on the matrix, right? Um, he, cho he chose to focus on institutions, right? Basically what he said was when institutions create, uh, sorry, when institutions discover the truth, they are creating the truth instead of discovering it. For example, homosexuality used to be treated as a disease, as was communism. Uh, in the asylums of the, late, of the late 19th century, you could find in the same world communists, homosexuals, um, criminals, people with leprosy, people with seizures, um, and mental illnesses because all of these afflictions or states were deemed as stemming from the same kind of disturbances. 
So this is actually one of the stated medical reasons that the Nazi party wound up using across all of Europe for the internment of those groups. Obviously, we know that there were other more practical political reasons, but the tradition to which they were returning and telling people they were returning to was this one. Right. Which is we see the it... mirror of that language in current um like anti-trans and anti uh homosexual um exactly activism. Exactly. Yeah, that, that, that's where everything ties into that. So the thing to understand is, like, put yourself in their shoes. Don't imagine, like, comic book villains. It's not a doctor that knows that homosexuality is not a disease, but chooses to do so because he's evil. He is convinced and has all of the tools of his day and age. That is science. This is modern science. We're not talking about, like, you know, I don't know, John D mixing the occult and, <laughs> and science together. This is like actual scientists that disco- also discovered at the same time, you know, mass vaccination and other stuff like that. Um, he, all of the tools that he had were pointing towards the fact that homosexuality as a disease is a fact. It is the truth. Because for them, when you took the chunk of reality, when you took reality, sorry, and you cut it up into the chunk that their limitations on knowledge created homosexuality as a healthy thing, as a normal, natural inclination of a human, was outside the limits of their thought. The limits of that thought Foucault called epistime, like epistemology. Epistime is the knowledge that orders knowledge, right? The science that says which science is valid, the truth that decides what what can be called truth. Right now, the reason this is so important, and this is where we get into what pisses off leftists, is that everything is an episteme. There is no one system of knowledge that has somehow transcended the way that knowledge is created and has reached some sort of objective truth. Yes, even the Marxist one. And by the way, as a Marxist, living in the year 2022 and not 1917, I completely <laughs> agree with Foucault. Lenin and Marx and Stalin and Mao and Ho Chi Minh and Castro and Che Guevara and all these guys did not have some sort of like mainline into metaphysical platonic truth. By the way, this will recur in the book discussion. Oh, yeah. They, they did not. I they mean, got – it's, it's... Yeah. It's, it's patently absurd when, when certain Marxists present that as true, because these are the same people who posit a purely materialist um, system, in their own words. They, they seek for materialism. They don't want the idealism uh, that marked and, in their mind, stained philosophy of the past. And this is something we talked about on uh, the podcast before as well. The problem is their model that they have found the through line to true objective reality is an idealized form that isn't grounded in fundamental reality yeah like um, they violate their own principle because it generates things that they want and instead of simply this is again where we tie it can tie Nietzsche into it instead of just seizing up ownership of it and going yes I will impress the image of the world that I want upon the world that is in order to bring it into being which by the way that's everyone does that literally everyone including people with no political power that's sort of what will is within the world Instead of just saying that, they have to make up some dumb fucking bullshit. Yeah, famously, one of the things that are the most fun about reading Foucault is that he loves to say, 
by the way, remember this really weird paragraph we just went on? I'm a Nietzschean. And it's like the least Nietzschean thing on the surface. But then when you think about it, you're like, huh, he is kind of Nietzschean. He does that with Marx, like Foucault in Le Mot et Le Chot, The Worlds and the Things, which is his most impenetrable text, but foundational text, says, I'm Probably a Marxist. Probably best one. Uh, <laughs> you could say that. I mean, it's his most complete one, I would say. Uh, I, right? I like it the most. That's, I, yeah, let me yeah. phrase it. I like it the sure. most. That's, that's, I like to lose a totally lot, so of course I like it the most. Yeah, yeah, yeah that, that, that checks out. He's like, I'm a Marxist. It's hard to read, oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and when you read that sentence, like, third year of philosophy beer, you're like, shut the fuck up, <laughs> you're not a Marxist. <laughs> and then you kind of, you think about it and you explore it more and you see that he wasn't entirely incorrect. So how can we, as Marxists, still agree with this notion of um, Foucault's idea of a pestiment, how knowledge is created, and the idea that Marxism is, just like all systems of knowledge, um, not possessive of some sort of eternal truth. Well, it's just like Langdon said, we are materialists. But the kind of materialism that we um, like to subscribe to, and warning another uh, French problematic philosopher has entered the uh, chat, um, we subscribe, or at least I subscribe, and I assume you do as well, Langdon, to what's called alleriative materialism, by which was phrased by Althusser. Um, Althusser famously killed his wife with an axe. He's um, a very I, bad man. Like, not yes. just problematic, this is a bad man. That, that, that wasn't a joke, by the way. Like He, he yeah. killed his wife with an axe. He was a very yeah. troubled individual. Um, he had, like, even before this episode, he had, like, a history of um, mental illnesses, um, psychotic breaks, and, and so on. So, yes, a very, very problematic person, but uh, a, a Marxist a philosopher and a very important one. The idea of alleriative materialism, sorry, I always have a tough time with that word. Uh, maybe he I should bring it up. a word that's hard to say instead of, instead of going the Deleuze route of making normal words make sentences that are impossible to understand he picked new hard to understand words and embedded them in otherwise normal sentences otherwise yeah. still very french yeah so the idea okay wow we need to go into this actually we already went into this in a way when we discussed um davids and davids when growing graver's book uh what the fuck is it called now? Uh, the Dawn of something. The Dawn of Everything, I think? The Dawn of Everything. This was like six months ago, and I can't remember the name of the book. Um, <laughs> well, a lot you, of history has been happening. <laughs> true, true. If you recall that episode, we discussed this idea um, of the European uh, peoples uh, from the 18th century moving forward of history as progressing uh, alongside a set line. Um, from a certain period to the period we are in now and then into the future. Of course, today... The teleology of history. Exactly. Um, today revived by the likes of... Um, what the hell is wrong with you today? Guns, Jumps, and Steel. What's his name? Um, um, Jared Diamond. Jared Diamond and his... So Jared Diamond is like the emperor and Yuval Noah Harari is like Darth Vader because um, he's like carried on his, his way, but he's more evil in certain ways. Uh, popular, repopularized and, and, and resurrected these, these ideas. Now, here's the thing. Marx, via Hegel, he inherited the same idea. 
he talks about it all the time. This idea of, you know, the Leninist idea, the Marxist-Leninist idea of first you have to have the serfs, then there's a bourgeoisie revolution, then, uh, sorry, serfdom, feudalism, the bourgeoisie revolution, capitalism, and then outside, out of capitalism, socialism, and from socialism, communism. And this is fact. This is how history develops because of the immortal and um, indelible forces of history. But that's not true. Like, we know it's not true because we lived it, right? We didn't get, um, we got serfdom, and then you're right, we had feudalism. Oh, Lord, although, Lord, Lord, did we get serfdom? <laughs> yes. Although, by the way, that's also inaccurate because serfdom and feudalism coexisted in different places in the world. Like Russia was famously uh, a serfdom until like the until the 1917 revolution. Um, and, and also, and, it's like as, as uh, I forget the name Braudel. There it is. Yeah. Um, Braudel, obviously. Ex- I say obviously, obviously to people who've read these books <laughs> and to no one else. Um, yeah. So uh, uh, another French guy named Bradel, um explicated on how feudalism and serfdom were also substantially more um, internally complex than we tend to imagine them and had characteristics of what we might frame as like an early capitalism because there was semi-privatization of certain um certain yeah. fields and complex market interactions. And Delanda also gets into that a bunch. For sure. So, and even if we don't read the historians, like we're living it, communism did not end yeah. up being like the millerianist post-history idea where everything um, succeeded. You know, you could argue it was just socialism, it wasn't the communist utopia, blah, blah, blah. But still, <clears throat> we, we know it's not the way that it works. And also to say capitalism is a, is a bit reductive, many, many forms of capitalism and so on and so forth. Now, is that to say that materialism is wrong? No, because now you get alliterative materialism via Althusser, which says that materialism doesn't have to be close-ended. It doesn't have to be about what is necessarily to come, but about potentials that are created by materialist forces. This is also less anachronistic, because when you look back at history, you don't get to say that the civil war in the in US, for example, had to have happened. Huh? I use the tense, that tense correctly. That is the toughest tense for non-English speakers, by the way. Yeah, um, we, we, made our, we made our language hard as hell for no reason. Yeah, English, English is fucking stupid. Um, <clears throat> it did not have to um, have happened that way. The civil war could have not broken out. There was nothing to force it into happening. There was nothing to force the French Revolution into existence. There was nothing to force the 1917 revolution into existence. It happened because materialist conditions provided the potentials. And then specific forces, including individuals, but also classes and um, other such institutions, took advantage of of those potentials and made them into reality. So we, we see this mirrored in, in Delanda and like, uh, th- this is the whole thrust of, uh, a thousand years of nonlinear history is built on like playing out exactly that same thought of looking at, um, he frames them as, I think the word he uses is like, uh, um, non teleological ho- homeostatic model of history. I forget yeah. the exact like fancy word, but the, the, the idea being that, so a teleology for, for listeners at home is like B must follow a C must follow B D must follow C. And we, we yeah, see basically, this weird and the way that we te- count the way that we, 
But, yeah, like teleological historicism says that history has a set goal to which it progresses. And meanwhile, the, these other uh, this like model of homeostasis says that there's any of a potential range of things that something can become, and the changing material conditions around it dictate which one of those paths it winds up taking. Uh, it's sort of like uh, another example is like drop a drop of water on your knuckle. Will it slide to the left or to the right? And the answer to that comes down to factors that are real, but that you can't see and may change. Like one drop going one way may change the way that the next drop would go down because of how it changes uh, those conditions. Um, and this is where like uh, Deleuze and as we start reintegrate. Ironically, for these for these dipshit types of Marxist Marxists, as we reintegrate what we know of physics and chemistry now, where we know that there are dynamical flows and dynamical models are substantially more complex than we thought that like, oh, of course, that makes sense. Like you can see in a phase chart that this piece of matter, like making something hotter doesn't necessarily make it a liquid. You can make it non-Newtonian if the, the pressure conditions are right and all these other things. Um, and it's, these models are quite literally just a way to account for that growing sense of knowledge that we see in a practical sense all over the place. A lot of our advances in say, even like computing come from having a more robust understanding of the real material physics that are happening when we run electricity through arranged rock particles, basically. And like, oh, if we just tweak some of these conditions, we can all of a sudden get things that... 30 years ago, they, they, well, not 30, but like 50 years ago, they literally didn't think you could do. It would sound yeah. like you were like, yeah, and if I just, you know, cross my fingers and, you know, bang my head against the wall, I can travel backwards through time. Yeah. So to bring this all full circle, like we went through Foucault, his life, his ideology. There are a few other mistakes that can be easily critiqued from an academic standpoint. By the way, again, go, going back to history, like he was just plain wrong about a lot of the things that he said about the Middle Ages. He wasn't yeah. a, a, a scholar of the Middle Ages. He didn't understand how feudalism worked all too well. Um, he made a lot of mistakes in that field, um, w which is a big deal, by the way. It's not a small thing. Like it completely undermines a lot of a lot of his points, um, which is which is kind of strange because the stuff that he says about ancient Greece is more historically um, accurate. Anyway, it's it, it's very clear that he did homework on specific periods and not on others. But but bringing all of this together. I hope that we've shown, again, very superficially, like how Foucault's philosophy is not corrosive to Marxist ideology. You can still believe that the proletariat should be the main controller of the means of production. By the way, that is the, 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 the most basic distillation of Marxism, right? Um, the proletariat should control the means of production. Not because it is inevitable, it is an historical progress that is simply a truth that is about to come. But just because the proletariat is the largest amount of people. And that brings us to Foucault's discussions and the people who are blaming him, allegations against Foucault, of individualism. Which on one hand are completely and utterly justified. Because a lot of Foucault's work, especially his latter work, that is not, by the way, in any books, it's just in a lot of interviews and lectures that he gave. Um, if you're interested, no, you know what, I'll give it in the, in the reading list. Um, there's a specific interview, which is very, very good. He talks a lot about freedom as the individual resisting the episteme, 
at the individual challenging the boundaries of what is normal and what is possible. By the way, that's how Foucault influenced queer theory, because the whole idea of queer theory is to study the idea of queerness. And what is queerness if not the um, struggle against and the and exceeding the lines of the normal? That's literally the definition of, of queer, right? This um, is uh, where we get the generation of one of my favorite misunderstood uh, papers, um, uh, Drone Warfare and Queer Bodies, yeah. Yeah. which I... I've never once seen a good reading of what actually is said in that paper. They just look at the title and in the title. Yeah. Cause the title seems funny. Um, <laughs> and, and by the way, so th- before the criticism, this is a powerful idea. And I think an idea that has a lot going for it, of course, with the reading that we can't get to hear of how power proliferates for every single act, the panopticon, you know, the memes, right? There's a cop in your head. By the way, that, that's for cop. Right? The idea of like a cop in your head. Um, you don't need an actual cop. Like we're policing ourselves in this panopticon and, and um, adhering to the episteme. So when you, you're queer, you are performing an act of resistance because you're not doing what power um, told you to do. Fuck you, I won't do what you tell me, right? As the great prophet of our age, Zach Delaroche said. Um, I, he should be the president of the Comintern after the revolution, by the way, I think. I agree. Uh, yeah, of the Politburo. <laughs> anyway. um, so, so going back to the criticism, there's something about that criticism, uh, sorry, about that ideology that focuses on the acts of the individual. Right? The individual is fighting against power in their own life by structuring their lives in a queer way, in a way that doesn't adhere to power. But the only way that this criticism, and, and I think, that criticism is valid for like 98% of people who read Foucault because they only read Discipline and Punish, right? Or they only read The History of Sexuality. They did not read La Motte La Chotte and, and some of the other stuff that I recommend in the, um, in the end. Because when you do read those articles and those books and those essays, you start to understand that power for Foucault lies in interaction, right? It lies within social networks. You can't really have, the power that's interesting is not the one cop versus the one person or the epistime versus the individual. The power that's interesting is the law of large numbers, is how the epistime and the power polices large-scale interactions. Large-scale doesn't mean on the state level. It can mean on the group level as well. Like, how do the boys, how does the boys chat police itself, right? In the interaction between individuals. And how does the workplace control its workers without having to have, you know, an HR person at every cubicle? Um, And how does, yeah, economic structures and the state and the market um, police its its, uh, denizens without actually shooting anyone most of the time. Now, you can the, see... Uh, yeah, go ahead. One of, the, one of the most interesting practical ways you can see that is, like, if you've ever been in a friend group that's fallen apart for some reason, and then you look back later in life, and you're like, God, that's weird that that happened and that we didn't. That's sort of the most practical endemic version of it. it it's similar to when uh, when asking to model communism for people, you tend to bring up 
um, ironically, the atomic family, where like you're not demanding the child work an equal amount of labor as the mother and father in order to get food. You go, well, they're contributing what they can. You know, they're 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 enriching the home and they're you know they're going to school. And so you know, yeah, of course they get they get room and board. They get they get food. They get all these things that they need in order to survive. Similarly, that kind of um, like micro social decay um, yeah. that later becomes inexplicable once you exit the moment is endemic of that like self-policing ideology i think uh this that's a very interesting point um and one of the other places where i felt it in my life and i'm sure everybody who's done the same can relate is when you emigrate um if you've ever emigrated to a different society you look at the society you're currently in and the society that you left that's why it's so alienating and you're like what the why did i why did i do any of this i'd like how weird are all these habits and the ways uh, which we talk, how, how fucking strange is it? And then as you get acclimated to the new society, the old society gets more stranger and stranger, right? Um, but now and again, you get this jarring feeling, this dissonance with the society you're currently in because the instincts and the, the policing methods of the old society are suddenly back in force because this is all psychology, right? It doesn't decay. It doesn't ever go away entirely. Um, so emigration is a really good way to feel um, how the, like the mechanisms of, of control. Um, we can even see a, a micro version of that. With, and I, I talk with my partner a lot about this because they're mixed race that um, that similar like double alienation that comes from specifically being mixed where you're alienated yeah. on both ends due to these traits that you inhabit from the other space. Yeah, for sure. So bringing this all back, you can see how these ideas, yeah, they might they might be more appealing to Marxists of the anarchist persuasion, right? Because they're sort of modular. You can apply them to any size of group that you'd like. And they talk about how groups sort of police themselves and, and moderate themselves without touching on too many ideas of um, you know, more hardline Marxists or authoritarian Marxists. But there's absolutely no reason why you shouldn't introduce those ideas if it's interesting to you. They are not mutually exclusive. On the contrary, Foucault's analysis of power and where power comes from and how it controls individuals is super important to understand stuff like um, false consciousness and uh, how why the working class is unaware of its own material interests, how the ruling uh, class managed to control culture. Like, if you read Marx and Engels again and Lenin, they wrote in a very different time where control of the newspaper was facilitated by literally police officers showing up to your press and pouring sugar down your press, right? That's how they used to like destroy mills, uh, sorry, uh, pressing machines, uh, sugar or cement or uh, rice as well and salt. Um, that's how it was controlled. Like when Lenin was starting his revolution, what he was worried about was the Tsarist police showing up and shooting everybody in the face. But that's not really how things work anymore. Well, unless you're from the United States and then literally leftists are getting killed in the streets and always talking about it. But um, that's not the main form of control. Like the um, random guy in, I don't know, Kentucky or Portland or wherever um, who's unaware of the fact that he's the proletariat and that Elon Musk is a fucking asshole and he has nothing in common with him, is not unaware of it because there's a police officer on every corner telling him, keep your head down. 
there are much more subtle mechanisms of control, and Foucault explores and explains those way better than someone from the 19th century did, because the 19th century was when these tools were being formed. Okay, uh, reading list. I'm not going to tell you to read Le Morte Le Shot because I'm not an evil <laughs> asshole. Um, the I would have told you, so you should be thankful yes. that Eden is, is making this list. I'd be like, yes. time to level up your brain, idiot. <laughs> yeah, so um, The Archaeology of Knowledge is a fantastic text that not enough people read about um, how the idea, Foucault's idea of genealogy, the Nietzsche... Uh, light should be flashing in your head um, of how knowledge is created and passed down and controlled and, and so on. Um, Discipline and Punish is a classic for a reason. It's a very good book. History of Sexuality, of course. And then I'm going to recommend one of the interviews from the latter period in Foucault's life. Um, let, let's see if I can remember the title off the top of my head. The Ethics of the Concern of the Self as a Practice of Freedom. Um, and this is where you'll find a lot of his latter ideas about how to make yourself beautiful. That, that was how Foucault put it there, making yourself beautiful, using um, techniques and tools and so on to challenge the limits of, your, of yourself as an individual and rebel against um, the epistemic and resist it. And from there, read everything else that he wrote because he's very, very good. Very problematic person. His ideology is misused many, many times by edgy internet people to justify stuff like, Money doesn't exist because money is a social construct. But there's nothing in Foucault that says that social constructs are weak. On the opposite, he says that social constructs are incredibly powerful. So saying that something is a social construct does not mean you can ignore it. It just means that it's not God-given. It's not natural. It is a structure that we build in a society. It reminds me of one of the biggest... um, All right, so I'm going to go back to my current bugbear. Fuck every turf Marxist. So that's that's the short version. Absolutely, 100% uh, my feeling. Just, Just if I had to add inflection, it's that they do this funny... Uh, anti-Foucault move where they, they try to strike out. It's like, well, if it's a social construct, it, it isn't material. And so, and that's where they sort of build these arguments against transness because if you take the notion that gender is a social construct, it is, by the way, um, we have lots of even anthropological information about that. That's not even just like Western queer theory. That's, but whatever. Um, but if you take that notion And then you start saying like, well, um, social constructs aren't necessarily material. So then um, the response of transness, which is in uh, intra-construct transformation, it's not necessarily, um, it's not immediately a material transformation. It's a transformation within this construct that we have that says you are X when really Y would fit you better. Um, they go, well, that's not real because these constructs aren't real. And they ignore a thing that we've brought up a lot, which is that um, people are real and that once a construct starts affecting how you behave, it also is real. Um, oh, that's but, what but reality like, is. Going even deeper into that, I agree 100% with what you said, but going even deeper and like exploring the idea here, what does materialism mean? Materialism means that everything that is the way to know which things are working on you and controlling you and deciding what you end up doing is to look at the world and what is actually there in, in existence. Instead of theorizing about metaphysical 
um, ideas. By the way, also, there, there is such a thing as Marxist metaphysics, right? Marxism and metaphysics are not mutually exclusive. But anyway, that's a much, much, much more complicated conversation. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's, that's grass so, level. It's fun, but it's, it's yeah, yeah. <laughs> complicated. Society, society is a material notion. If you think about society as, yes, there are five forms of society, and this form is created at this date, and this form does this, that is ideology. But if you look at society as the sum total of the means of production plus the modes of production, no one talks about the modes of production, which are the actual social structures controlling how labor is organized and the economic... That's literally where we get proletariat versus bourgeoisie and people don't care to learn that. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, yeah. 100%. And then society plus (laughs) that stuff plus how the ruling class enforce their powers, aka the police, the military, the courts, so on and so the banks, so on and so forth. That is society. It is a material notion. Nothing that I said here is ideology, is idealism, sorry. Um, So now we look at the constructs that this society creates. And these constructs are not abstract ideas. They are material realities. Because if gender is constructed along a binary model, then all the clothes in the boys' section of the clothing store are blue. And all the, se- all the clothes in the section of the girls' clothing store are pink. It's not an abstract thing. All of your options were denied by the binary epistime. That's how Foucault would call it. It is the limit on what is a boy and what is a girl. A boy plays with trucks. A girl plays with princesses. A boy wears blue. A girl wears pink. And so on. These are materialist realities. All that social construct is trying to say is something that Marxists should agree with. And that there is nothing natural or God-given or inherent or unchangeable about anything that we see around us. Marx said this. It is men that make history. That's what he meant. It is men that decide how a society is organized. It doesn't have to be capitalist. It doesn't have to be bourgeoisie. It doesn't have to be proletariat. It is solely based on what the material people creating the material labor end up creating. That's what social construct means. It's a Marxist concept. You um, think that people who worship dialectics as a kind of uh, pseudo-god would understand that its whole its whole point, its whole power is the the dynamical force that we see within like our, our mountains given by God. No, they're made by physical force. And likewise, they're not eternal. They can be taken away by the same physical forces that made them. Are oceans made by God? No, um, because they can also turn to a desert, which can also turn back to an ocean. Should the physical conditions become uh, correct. And if certain forces are applied in certain ways, you can change nearly anything into nearly anything else. Like, which is also where I find it baffling when they look at Deleuze saying that is basically like this is where the fluid force of uh, like activism and and the practical political power of of the lay polity exists is precisely that permanent potentiality. It can literally never be taken away no matter what happens. And they go, that's neoliberal. And it's like, what the fuck are you talking about? Like, <laughs> are you just saying words to say them? Like, yeah. The problem, I'll tell you, at the end of this discussion, the problem is that people read too much Hegel. Stop reading Hegel. Stop. 
Just read Marx. You don't need to read Hegel. Okay. Um, music. So we're both going to do like uh, older bands. And I'm going to do what is... So one of the memes of the metal community is, when is the new Necrophagist album coming? And the new Necrophagist album is coming Neville. Um, I think that's safe to we say. We know that in our hearts. Yes. It's like a legendary album that's never been released and will never be released. There's another band that's my Necrophagist. Like I've been waiting for a new album for them for so long. And that is Gods of Eden. This, as so I'm going to say a few genres, but they sound nothing like what you expect from those genres. They're like, they play progressive technical death metal. But if the people who made it grew up on like Blind Guardian, Rhapsody, um, fuck, uh, Symphony X, um, and like cheesy prog power. Super like chromatic riffs, super all over the top and like energetic vocals. Uh, by the way, it's all like the themes are all like ancient aliens, um, like Stargate, you know, <laughs> the Egyptians were actually aliens, whatever. Um, one of the most explosive albums I've ever heard from the end of heaven, um, 2015, 2015. And ever since then, 2018, they like dropped like a social media post and we're working on stuff and the album is still um, not out. I mean, this album sounds like nothing else you will ever hear. Um, it is super powerful. And I really, really, really hope um, that the the new album is a thing. Um, that's it. We're going to listen to For the Abyss, uh, the fourth track from the album. Enjoy. I hope you like it. It's one of my favorite albums of all times and also criminally underrated. Um, and hopefully there's a new one coming soon. So this is Gods of Eden with For the Abyss.
Okay. <laughs> now <laughs> we're going to talk about <clears throat> the prelude completed. <laughs> yes. Now we're going to talk about uh, Platonist fantasy. Um, <laughs> in case you think I'm making it up, it up there's two gen- two books in the genre now. Um, Piranesi, which we'll cover sometime in the future. And now uh, also Alex uh, Phoebe's Malakoy. Um, so the name might ring a bell. You know, Langdon, before we started this episode, I was like, should I say something about the fact that it's a sequel? Should I say like, here at Death Sentence, we don't really do franchises. But then I remember that we did Book of the New Sun. <laughs> so look, that's not even true. Look, we we don't do franchises unless we want to do them and we think and they're we good and cool. <laughs> You yeah. can't control me. You're the listener, but you can't control me. You don't even know where I live aside from America. Yeah. So I'm going to dox Langdon on the next episode. <laughs> uh, the one the one where Eden doxes Langdon. Uh, <laughs> so, a powerful change in the power dynamic. <laughs> yeah. So Alex, Alex uh, Febby, um, we've covered his books, his book previously, Mordieu, fantastic weird fantasy novel slash metaphor for capitalism um, described as dizzy, <laughs> dizzying, sorry. Uh, I completely agree. Um, it's like, so imagine if you have, haven't read it and you should, it's been out for two years. Uh, Goldman gassed, but on acid. Um, I think that's a good, summation of it um uh, and now charles dickens attempted to write a bloodborne novelization yes i like that it's a, <laughs> it's, what if what if charles dickens wrote a bloodborne dlc um God, i love it so much yes so now alex is, is about to publish i think like this week or next week something like that um is about to publish malakoy the sequel to mordieu malakoy of course being the um, sister city of Mordieu from the um, first novel. When is this releasing? September 8th. Wow, we are so uh, topical. Five days. Um, Beautiful. For here, once, <laughs> we nailed it on or around the yeah. date. Instead um, of way before or way after. <laughs> yeah, we totally nailed it. And I'll make sure to oh. edit this and post it like before the book. <laughs> Uh, releases publicists please keep sending us things i swear to god we we do read them <laughs> yeah also books don't get old it's not like music right where people That's keep, right. keep going yeah anyway so i'm gonna give you the like non-spoiler headlines um if you've read more and and you want to read this book we won't delay too much on the plot i think here because it, it supposes that you read the first book but this book does really interesting things like really interesting things with the genre of fantasy. So here's the premise. Well, uh, I can't do it without spoilers. I'm <laughs> going to spoil Mojiu, but not Malokoi. Okay? Spoilers yeah, for like. <laughs> Yeah. So Mojiu ends when Nathan, our protagonist, dies. Uh, specifically, the master of Mojiu, the big evil wizard, collapses him into a singularity. Um, God, and so fucking cool. <laughs> yeah. And, and puts him inside of a weapon. Um, and because of that, all of his like companions that he um, collected over the first book, uh, Gam and Prissy and uh, Anaximander, the talking dog, um, and Sirius, the non-talking but magical dog. Yeah, these books are wild if you haven't read them. They all uh, 
scatter. And, and now, basically, what happens next? Right? We know that there's like this evil force on the horizon, the eighth atheist crusade, um, and they're coming for everyone. Um, and they're on their way. And basically, this Malakoy explores the ramifications of the first book. It's very much a stitch book, right? Connecting the first and the third book um, explores kind of the ramifications. It does move the plot forward in its second half, um, but it still focuses on less time. And I would even say less events than the first one. But boy, are those events weird. Um, okay, non-spoiler section has ended. Malakoy, like, really amps up the weird. Um, in Moju, it was kind of like in the background, kind of like the etched city, which I want to still do a solo episode on, um, but you should all read by KJ Bishop. Um, it was in the background, like... It was it was still weird, but it was very hinted at, like who is the yeah, master. He, he he wanted to wait definitely until the the third act in that one to reveal like the depth of the weirdness because he'd mentioned in our episode here that he was thinking about like famous fantasy trilogies and let's say um picking one that every fantasy head has ever read when when you're reading Shannara like in sort of Shannara you don't really understand that this is a post nuclear world that is generated. Uh, this weirdness and that the the weapons of the dark wizard are actually our current material weapons also i'm convinced that the movie wizards by ralph bakshi is just a failed shannara adaptation but that's whatever <laughs> um, uh, but but that similar thing of like you don't you don't really have a guess or um uh, otherwise famously like the hobbit if you read the hobbit you don't really know the depth of like say the evil of sauron and, yeah, that's and... just the necromancer, right, in, yeah. in Mirkwood. Yeah, so here's the thing, where all this weirdness comes from, and this is why I call it a Platonist uh, fantasy book. So he does the magic system in this book that he didn't do in the first one. Like, he gives you the magic system, and the magic system works like this. We exist in the material realm so far, just what we discussed in the first part of the episode. <laughs> but there's also the immaterial realm. And the immaterial realm is kind of like the realm of ideas in uh, Plato's philosophy. I'll get to it. I'll explain it in a sec. Um, and it contains everything. It contains all of the potentialities, all of the um, states of everything that exists in this timeless, formless, spaceless sort of dimension. And in between these two realms, there's the weft. And the weft, which is interesting because a lot of people have used like loom terminology for magic, uh, most famously Robert Jordan in Wheel of Time, but also Naomi Novik in Spinning Silver, um, and uh, Forgotten Realms also uses the weave, right? So here it's the weft. And the weft is basically the interaction between the material and the immaterial, and that actually contains those potentialities, right? Because between the immaterial and the material, you get things, right? The things that actually, reality is a blend of the material, the body of a person, and his, their soul is in the immaterial realm. So the, the, the tension between them and the specific form that they take is inherent in the weft. And what we call magic manipulators are people who manipulate the weft and basically bring different states into being. If I want to set a stone on fire, I just go into the weft, I find the state in which, which contains all of the states, right? Um, in which the stone is on fire, and I bring it to being by spending 
basically God's willpower, right? Um, God, the weftling, was this creature whose willpower was synonymous with the way that the weft translated into the material realm. And when God died, I could we could steal his will and change the way reality exists. That's called the spark. By the way, those of you who read Mordieu, now we know what the spark actually is. Okay? Now that's the magic system. Now, if you paid, paid attention, you notice that there's basically infinite spells you can cast, right? Like infinite manipulations you can do in reality. And that's where the weirdness comes from. <laughs> the, the master's thing is time and manipulating like dimensions and their time. Langdon, did you get to the point where he casts like all the time spells? I did. That was hard to read with my like um, brain, but with my heart, it was very easy to read. It was written for you, dude. Like all yes. like the the mathematics, like the numerical relations. I I started like trying to write it down and calculating like the ratios, and I was like, no, I'm not. I'm not doing this. So I I, my, I told him when we were interviewing him that it's like he wrote these books for me. Like what? Because the other thing that I mentioned in the first episode, it's like, what if James Joyce wrote Lord of the Rings? Um, yeah. And he just dove harder and gave me a pinch of, that's right, the forbidden fruit, Neil Stevenson. <laughs> <laughs> For sure. So like, I'm like an so, alcoholic going to the bar with that and Eden, just, Eden and Gareth shake their head and they're like, they're at the drink again. As, yeah. as I take a big quaff of the Neil Stevenson. They fell off the, the Neil Stevenson wagon. Um, 12 step program for getting off Neil Stevenson. Um, so he's addicted to info dumps. Yeah. So the master, for example, what he does, like, okay, he wants to make a person. He has like all these cloning powers. He's very good at changing things that already exist to be, to be accurate. That's the way they say it in the book. Um, so you, all the processes that he has to create this person take a lot of time. So you, a pleb, a loser, um, a guy who has no magic, you'll just wait. But what he does, he creates a pocket dimension that goes uh, 0.5 the speed of the material realm. Again, not reality. There is no like prime reality material realm because God is dead, right? Um, and then he creates another pocket dimension that goes 0.5 the speed of the pocket dimension that goes 0.5 speed. Langdon, how much is that? 0. Point something of the Two material five. realm? Two five, right? I should have known that. It's just half. Um, yeah. And then he keeps going and does all of these manipulations. So when years and years pass in the bottom level of the stack, um, only like five seconds have passed in the material realm. Sounds pretty simple until you realize that the whole manse, like the master's mansion, it's not the actual manse. He creates these like antechambers, right? Like these dimensions that you have to enter before you get to the actual dimension where the master is. But that's also not the material realm. It's like a third removed dimension where he can play with the rules. And there isn't just one master. Like Alex Phoebe does the prestige in this book. Oh, he yeah. Does, he does the prestige. Like the master creates a clone of himself and the clone of himself kills the original and we don't even know if that master is the original, right? Because what's to say he's the original and not just a series of clones? Um, now, given he... my Severian uh, hypotheses, oh, I yeah, very yeah. strongly believe that this is not the first master. That, that, that we're seeing a potentially should... infinite series. Uh... So you should go one step further. The master is Severian. I'm joking. Uh, the master is the Utark. 
I'm waiting for a revelation that one of the one of the main characters is also one of the, the master. Yeah, it could be. So I've read okay. fantasy books. That shit happens. Yes, it does. So we already said the book of the new sun. Another thing that is revealed on Malakoy <laughs> is that it's dying elf. Um, <laughs> this so Morju is obviously a French city. Um, Mor Dieu, right? The death of God. God is buried in um, Mordieu. I have not figured out exactly what Malarkoi means, although he does hint at it towards the end of the book. He says it's like a, something that the master called it to be like, it's like a derogatory term. Uh, malarkey, maybe? Um, and it, it got kind of changed. And there's I think another... it's a little bit of malarkey, and then there's also like Mal, and then Ark, Arkoi, I think oh, is something oh, yeah. About... yeah, 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 that's a thing. Arkoi is like uh, a foundation. Um... So like Whatever. bad foundation. Something like that. I, I remember that I figured this out, but we have a galley also, copy Ar- of this. Arkoi is is like a real island. Yeah. So because we have um because we have a, a galley, then the, my Kindle highlights they don't sync, so I can't actually look at them, which is a shame because I highlight all the time exactly for stuff like this. The, the solution is in the book, okay? Um, yeah. a, th- a third city is introduced, Water Black. That's the name of the third novel, by the way. That's Dublin. Um, so you could say it's a parallel earth or just a metaphor, but no, it's our earth, just thousands and thousands or even millions of years in the future. They visit like ruins of, um, cities like modern cities and we also find out that the master the mistress the other spellcaster in the book and other characters like clarissa um nathan's mom and one of the major players and his dad they've all been around since our period through magic it quite literally is a reverse lord of the rings in that all of middle earth is um well all of the middle earth that that the Lord of the Rings takes place on is is Europe. Like for those who have who are up on their legendarium, uh, they know that it's the Shire is literally the British Isles. Like it, it's literally like Ireland and Scotland, um, and the fields of of England, and that you know the where Saruman's tower is is quite literally in Germany. Um, and this does the exact same thing, but if you went forward instead of backward. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. So the other third thing, Banger, the weird thing shit. about this book. Yeah. Good shit. <laughs> um, by the way, Tolkien is dead and can't count Amanda, so we can say whatever the fuck you want about his books. That's right. I don't care. Um, he's dead. And even if he was alive, I don't give a shit. I can say I what, what he's going to do. I want to talk about a Tolkien meme after, in, in, a, in a second. Actually, I'll just sure. say it now because it's funny. Yeah. That whole like Tolkien, he had uh, firm black and white morality and no gray morality, unlike this George R. R. Martin who has all this gray don't, morality. So, and I'm tearing my hair out. I'm just I'm don't tearing my hair out and I'm screaming. <laughs> don't do it, Langdon, because I'm going to do a solo episode on this. I'm like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do a solo episode on one page out of the Silmarillion. I think One I page. can guess the page that if it relates it's, at all to this, I think I can guess the page. It's the weird one at the end of the Alcalabeth. Um, I was right. Yeah. So, okay. Back to, <laughs> back to Alex, baby. So 
we we said two things why this is weird. I still owe you an explanation about the Platinus nature of this, and maybe we'll do it at the end. We'll definitely do it at the end because we have a few more Platinus things to talk about. The third element, and this is my favorite part of the book, is the Mistress's Pyramid. So Gam, Prissy, and Dashini. Is that not a name of like a water brand in the US? Uh, Dasani is. Dasani, whatever. Um, they go to find the mistress. Dashini is her heiress, and they want to find out what's going on. Like the master and the mistress, their conflict is the basis of this book. But um, when Nathan, quote unquote, kills the mistress in Moju, it's obvious she's not actually dead. But where is she? So they go to her pyramid. And they found out that the master has done like a quarantine. That's like one of the master's uh, expertise spells. And they cannot, they can no longer use the front door. So they have to use the back door. Uh, the back door, the problem with it is that it starts at the bottom. And the way that the mistress's pyramid works, it has worlds inside of it. Each level of the pyramid is a different realm with people who worship the mistress in all sorts of different forms. Now, you might imagine your. Tolkien-esque, faintly European sort of people who live in there. Or maybe your Conan, right? Like different tribes that are reminiscent of civilizations. No. The first level has people who are sheep. Like giant man-sized sheep. And the second level has person-headed snakes. Or is it snake-headed persons? Yeah, person-headed snakes. Uh, yeah. who, who have like a monotheistic religion that has just collapsed. And yeah, the third I level has. Me, you, and Gareth flipped the fuck out when we all got to the Naga pyramid. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then the third level has dragons, like literal dragons. And, and the gang, they have to climb up through this pyramid until, you know, I was kind of like on the fence whether this was like a, a Platonist fantasy until they got to the top level where there are pyramids inside of pyramids and each one of those pyramids is a different realm. So let us let me stop here and, and explain why this is a Platonist idea and why this entire book is Platonist. So in the Republic, Plato's Republic, um, there's a lot of really important segments that you can read as a standalone. There's the metal analogy, not heavy metal, the actual metals. Um, there's the part about the cave, of course, the most famous part that you can read standalone. And there's also a little something called the divided line. Okay? So imagine that reality is a line. And then we split the line two-thirds. So there's a part that's two-thirds and a part that's one-third. This is really hard to explain without my hands <laughs> because I'm recording a podcast. Um, and the, the two-third, the bottom two-thirds are all of the material things, right? Everything that has existed in material reality. Uh, tables and water and the sky and what have you. Now take that part and split it again, two-thirds and one-third. The two-thirds is shadows, starting to echo the cave, it's because they work together. Um, shadows are reflections and actual shadows. They're images of objects. They're not the actual objects. So your poetry, famously Plato hated poetry, or Socrates, or whatever, uh, paintings, reflections, and representations at large. And then the top one-third of the bottom two-thirds is the objects themselves. 
Simple enough. Now we go to the top one third of the entire line. Getting confused? That's okay. Don't worry. It's over soon. Top one third is also divided into two thirds and into one third. The bottom two thirds of the top one third are laws. That's your physics, chemistry, biology. The laws that you can derive with your rational brain. If I drop a stone, if I let the stone go, the stone will drop. If I um, heat something long enough, it will catch on fire. All of the laws that control the objects and our reality. And the topmost level, the last one-third, are the famous ideas. These are the laws. Forms, right. These are the (laughs) laws that order the laws. So beauty is a form, an idea. Um, It is not a law. It's not about, you know, if I do this, then this happens. But it says that if these things happen, they are beautiful or the resulting thing is beautiful. And up there you have truth and justice, beauty and courage and all of those different things. And of course, at the very, very tip top, technically not a hierarchy, but actually it is a hierarchy, there is the good. The good is the form that organizes all of the rest of the forms. The beautiful is beautiful because it is good. The true is true because it is good. The justice is just because it is good. And so on and so forth. You can probably already piece together why I'm calling Malakoy and Moju Platonist fantasy and also Piranesi. First of all, because of the material and the immaterial, which is exactly the division of Plato and a divided line, but also because of the interaction between the people who reside and mess around with the immaterial, that is the top two-thirds of the divided line, and what they can do to the bottom two-thirds and to reality manipulate it, cause things to come into being, and basically play around with it like clay. Remold it, reshape it, and so on. And then when you get to a pyramid that has pyramids inside of it, triangles are very, very uh, strong in Greek philosophy as the perfect form, right? the most um, solid form. Because if you think about it, and this is maybe Langdon's territory that I'm stepping into, a triangle is the closed shape with the least amount of sides, planes, right? Yep. You can't go any less because then it's, it's not a closed shape. So the triangle is the most basic and minimal of the shapes. It, it has the least excess. It is the, most, it is the closest to the ideal form of a shape, of order. And therefore, it is the closest to the good. All of these ideas and aesthetics, of course, came down to us through Neoplatonism. We won't get into it. No, actually, you know what? We will get into it, and I will lay up Langdon to talk about Deleuze. Because, yes, because the Neoplatonists, (laughs) who were all Christians, took this idea. This is actually super relevant to Malakoy. I don't know why I wanted to skip it. And said, how do you explain how things interact between the immaterial and the material realm? Because at the top, the good they replace with God, right? God sits at the top of the two th- of the one third, the top of the divided line. And because he's so good, he flows over. And for a process called, are you ready? Here it comes. Imminence, his goodness and his order flows down into reality. You ever thought now, about amenitizing a catachon? This is what we're talking about, baby. Exactly. So famously, 
Um, wait, hold on. So before that, this idea of imminence is also present in Malarkoi, because that's what the Weftling, God who is dead, exactly does to reality. And that's what all of the smaller gods that we encounter through the book, like Sirius, the god dog, but one of the best parts of this book, is fantastic. By the way, it's not a coincidence that the other talking dog is called Anaximander, who is a proto-Socratic philosopher, and his rival doppelganger is called Thales, um, another very famous proto-Socratic philosopher. Like, Febi is not being very coy about his Platonist-like uh, influences. Um, so that's what they do. They emanate they um like humanitizing the the eschaton they emanate their willpower into existence now another philosopher who used imminence is deleuze and now i will shut up so for deleuze his his model of imminence uh plays into one of the more functional aspects of his philosophy which is that of intensities and thresholds he he gets into this a lot in um he let me rephrase that he actually explains what the fuck he's talking about in um difference and repetition and then he yeah. uses it a shitload and everything after um so the model that he uses for that is that uh things are trapped basically within going back to the physics model things are trapped within a phase state you can do all kinds of things to a physical i'm looking at a cup so you can do all kinds of things to a physical cup but it's going to remain a solid it's going to be a cup if you want to make it into something different like a liquid or a gas you have to do something very extreme to it it's not enough to just bash it it's not enough to just um uh like scream at it or like anything like that you have to bring it to tremendous levels of heat or tremendous levels of pressure or all the uh, things like that in order to literally change whether it is a solid liquid a gas an einsteinian fluid a non-newtonian fluid all, all these uh all these kinds of things and so leaning back towards uh the model as presented uh by Deleuze from that he refers to those as like thresholds that you need intensity to pierce okay it's pretty easy metaphor to follow um he, he uses that to talk about all kinds of things from, from social movements and political movements to quite literally physical matter. And so that, that's sort of his materialist binding was he wanted to find a philosophical model that could exist gainfully in both um, the world of the sciences and the world of the mind, because that sort of helps cut. Ironic coming from a guy like fucking Deleuze. In his mind, that would cut through the cloudiness of a lot of idealist philosophers where it can feel sometimes like word games rather than reality. Um, the way this plays out in the conceptual realm is that same, that same process can occur through tremendous intensity and through some direction, you can pierce a membrane and amenitize something. Um, so he uses amenitization to refer to that sort of the thing which causes you to have a phase change in either an idea, a form, um, a, a physical object, um, a social movement. It's sort of like uh, going back to the book a little bit. It's, it's the spark that makes these things happen. Um, like where is the weakest point in this membrane? And then what is the pinprick that will push you through it? It's also his way of recapturing Nietzsche, because in his mind, this is what Nietzsche's model of will and the will to power 
meant is that the Ubermensch is a state that anyone uh, achieves, at least temporarily, when they are through intensity able to pierce through the containing shell of the form that they are into this this new form, the uh, the Ubermensch. And so this is his way of remodeling it to make it um, less proto-fascistic and more, <laughs> you know, use you know because Nietzsche does have his critiques that you when you look at how Nazis used them you go man you really didn't understand him except those parts where you kind of did um I mean uh, the phrase blonde hair beasts um destroying the the lit, this is literally in genealogy of good and evil destroying yeah. the Arab is is literally in genealogy of good and evil yeah yeah he is uh not a flawless man um no that's not for sure a lot of useful ideas and then a lot of very bad ideas. Yeah. Uh, it turns so, out that you can't but, be a professional thinker and not do a little bit of both. Um, but yeah. Yeah. So that's I think sort of the, the uh, so yeah, thank you, you for that explanation, by the way, this could, this takes years to understand, by the way, this shit. Um, we haven't even brought up uh, uh, Spinoza in this episode, which I think is a shame, but going back to, I think to that, would, that a, would take even longer eternity. Yeah. I love Spinoza. Uh, I mean, who doesn't who doesn't love Spinoza if they study philosophy? But that that's not a guy that we can casually whip out. Yeah, for sure. So I think the most um, useful idea to take out of the Deleuzian reading of Malarkoy is the idea of intensity, because it explains exactly what the spark is and why all of the casters in the book have to pay prices to cast spells. Of course, this is a common idea, right? Like Febby didn't invent this idea that um, magic has a cost uh, as far back as uh, even Tolkien, right? Or even people before Tolkien, the idea that like casting takes a toll um, or if we get into fancy and fantasy, there it's made explicit that like there's costs like reagents and they have to be expensive and rare and so on. But, But here the cost is almost intent, right? The cost is potential, well, intent as potential, right? So one of the most fucked up parts of the book, and this is really seriously fucked up, so if you're listening and you're squeamish, then maybe don't listen to this part. Um, Clarissa Delacroix, um, Nathan's um, mother, it is revealed that her power comes from the fact that she, so in the first book, she sleeps around. Um, she's a sex worker, right? And she sleeps around with basically um, all of the people in the, in the slums and also some of the elite of, of Moju. And it seems just like something that she's doing because they're poor. But turns out that she <laughs> she fertilizes all of her eggs. And then when she kills them in the womb, the power that's released is the potential of the life that could have been had that egg been born. And not just the life of that egg, but the life of their children and their children called spark lines, like the family lines. Um, and that's what she uses to power her spells. So basically, she's destroying the intensity, right? So the potential of that life and the lives it would have created and their impact on reality, right? Their impact on the plane of imminence. And using that to power, to kind of steal that intensity and use it to change the world into her um, desires. If that's not fucked up enough, she runs out of the eggs at some point, of course. But apparently she has a clone somewhere. So she goes and 
kills her and rips out her womb so that she can refresh her stock. And then she becomes God. Uh, the book ends with Clarissa becoming God. Um, and also with a bunch of other weird shit. So that's Malakoy. Um, there's a lot more that we didn't talk about. Oh, yeah. um, Sirius gets his time in the sun, becomes a god of dogs. Um, there's lots of cool spells. It's also more Vancian. Like a lot of the master's spells are very Vancian. Um, there's the assassins. We didn't talk about the assassins. There's the way that the mistress of Malakoy kind of like divides herself into avatars. Um, all over the place. And basically every strong female character in the book almost is like an avatar of the mistress. Um, Prissy uh, takes over from the mistress. The Joes, one of the best characters for Mordu. Um, these like conjoined twins, but on the, the, the metaphysical level, they get the um, just desserts or good just desserts. They go to heaven and more and more and more. I cannot stress enough how much you need to read this book. If you like fantasy, the new weird. By the way, yesterday I spoke with Ronnie, my partner, and I was thinking about like how little intersections we have between the new weird and fantasy, but how all of them are fucking incredible. Um, Mordieu, The Edge City, um, some Vandermeer stuff, Piranesi, and, and stuff like this, and, and of course, uh, Malakoy. Um, so if you're in any way interested in any of these like spaces or ideas, read Mordieu if you haven't. And then on the 9th of September, you should go out and buy um, Malakoy. I'm still, I need to order like physical copies of these books because I would like to have them. Um, that's it. Langdon, music us. Oh, what a rousing episode. What a, what a beautiful rousing episode. And what <laughs> better way to end uh, such a beautiful sojourn than uh, to journey into the stars and battle and die in space. Please. Uh, Eden, do you like dying in space? I, it's my favorite thing to do. Remember when Vol put out a concept album about dying in space and then they made a second Fuck. album that was also yeah, a concept album about dying in space? Remember how everybody forgot about them for some fucking reason? I, I still listen to Deeper Than the Sky fucking all the time. That shit is so fucking great. You know what um, I love about that album? It's not on a label at all. <clears throat> that, that's right. That's right. Yeah. I mean, it says it's yeah. on a label, but that label doesn't exist. So It doesn't exist. It just came out. Um, I find it amazing that Mike Vait, um Vait, is that how you pronounce it? He Perhaps. secretly had been hiding that he is a killer thrash vocalist this whole time. Yeah amazing yeah. so a similar kind of vibe to them but a a newer band i actually just realized this album came out uh this year i didn't realize that it was um from this year uh, i thought it was earlier than that it's this band that i discovered recently called armory um, armory fucking rule dude yeah i'm I, I i'd heard about them from a while ago but i heard they're from gothenburg and my uh apparently controversial but utterly correct take is that most <laughs> melodic death metal is fucking trash just sucks um, gonna, are you gonna recommend mercurion or one of their older albums i'm gonna recommend uh mercurion yes fuck yeah this the, i'm gonna recommend the song that i heard that made me like i've been playing this album on loop for the past like month because I just happened across the song, The Hunters from Beyond. 
It's the fourth track. Just everything about it, it sounds like if Tankard and early Voivod and uh, what's that band that did? Corner. Uh, it sounds like if the three of them like got mushed together. Like it's it's proggy in the way that traditional heavy metal tends to be proggy, where it's not like where like they're they're too dumb to play progressive metal in a cool way. Yeah, I know too many Heshers now who get mad when I say that trad metal is uh 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 the moron pilled progressive metal, but I mean that in a good way. It's it's like when death metal makes you less able to read because yeah. the riffs have made you dumber. That's it's, great. That's a good thing. It's your moron complimentary. Exactly. Exactly. This is a valorizing thing. Yes. Um, we're ascending to the... Because the ideal form of the traditional heavy metal figure is the guy on the Man of War covers. That's what we yeah. strive to become. He doesn't have a face, probably can't read. I'm assuming he can't read. He's like Conan. Conan couldn't read. That's a lie. He actually famously could read in the stories. But, you know, let's pretend he couldn't read. Um, yeah, these guys just fucking rip. Um, it has thrown me down a contemporary um, thrashier speed metal uh, wing, which, contrary to my, uh, my, uh, my social media presence, I actually like the whole blackened speed metal thing. I just find, similar to Eden, I find a lot of the repeated themes kind of corny after a bit yeah. i'm like get, yeah. get give me something to chew on like this this shit rips but give me something to chew on and these guys they gave me my favorite shit dying in space yep so and, back back when i covered this for the blog in may i i, I said it's like two sentences allow me to charm you with a spell speed metal science fiction concept album from gutenberg did it work are you charmed? Very well. Now I shall put you to do my sinister bidding. I bid you listen to this extremely sick and awesome speed metal album from Armory, for I am a benign master. It, it's just, it's such a, oh, it whips so much ass. I'm just, oh, it reminds me of when I discovered Cryptos, um, not terribly yeah. long ago. Again, similar band that has just this really ripping thrash metal edge. To their traditional and speed metal sonic core and just enough of that like like when i say voivod imagine like early voivod or early coroner where they hadn't gone full prog yet but that weirdness was still there like every now and again they'll hit an arpeggio where you're like "Ooh, that's a king crimson chord and then they'll just move into thrash and you're like yeah fucking sick so which track are we listening to the hunters from beyond Enjoy. Goodbye. <laughs> 